0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to online worship with the Oceanside Sanctuary. It's so good to have all of you joining us on Facebook and YouTube. We want to ask that you make sure and say hello to each other in the comments, share pictures of yourselves taking communion. It's one of the ways that we can greet each other and remind each other that we are here, encouraging one another, that this is still a fellowship opportunity, even though we are only online. Today I want to share with you a passage of scripture from Acts chapter 15. We're going to continue with what I'm calling is our series on American Gods. I'm going to be talking for the next couple of weeks about the things in church that we have a tendency to turn into idols in our faith. We don't do this consciously. I think we generally don't do it uh, intentionally. This isn't something uh, that we are sort of trying to import into our faith for, from any place of of malice or deceit. But it is something that because we are human, because we are in, in essentially broken uh, in the way that we worship. Last week I shared with you the quote from John Calvin that the human heart is an idle factory. And what he meant by that was that the human heart wants to create representations of God that then become idols in our lives. So very often these are things that start out as good but begin to replace the, the place of God in our hearts and in our worship. And today I want to talk to you about nationalism and how nationalism can easily creep into that place in our hearts where we are confusing our identity as Americans with our identity as Christians. Before we do, I just want to say a quick prayer. So I going to ask that you would join with me as we pray together, and then we're going to jump into the text from Acts chapter 15. Would you just pray with me? God, we thank you for today and for this morning, this opportunity for us to come together and worship wherever we might be from our living rooms or our bedrooms or our back decks or our front porches. We know that you are with us worshiping. in in spirit and in truth, as we turn our hearts and our minds to you, we ask that you would empower each of us with a sense that we are joined together today uh, by casting our worship uh, towards you. And we ask that you would teach us, God, what it looks like for us to put you at the center of everything we do, to put you and our identity in Christ first. In foremost in our lives as followers of Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 15, I want to share uh, just a couple of passages from Acts chapter 15. This is one of those incredibly historic moments in the early church. This is really before there was such a thing as Christianity, which I know is sort of an odd thing for us to think about when we open the New Testament and we read from it. But one of the things that I think is really important for us to understand and to remember is that in the first four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then in the book of Acts, there really was no sense of being Christians. That's a word that came later. For the people that Jesus is ministering to, they were, of course, Jewish. Because Jesus was Jewish, and Jesus came to a Jewish people whose entire identity as people Their entire ethnic identity, and today we would think of that as a national identity, their entire identity was built on the notion that God had especially called them. Jesus seems to agree with that calling, and so does Paul in the New Testament. But something really momentous, really historic happens in the book of Acts. And Paul writes about it also in Galatians in his letter to the church in Galatians. And this is where we first begin to see a separating out of ethnic identity from identity in Christ. And so I wanna just drop into the text here in Acts chapter 15 and share this with you. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. We're gonna start in Acts chapter 15 verse one. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We're just gonna go ahead and put it up on the screen for you. Acts chapter 15 verse one says this. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, quote, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. Now, so here's what's going on here. The Book of Acts, of course, is Luke's uh, historic unpacking of some of the highlights of the early church and what happens in the early church. And in chapter 15, what we're doing is we're dropping in on a particular uh, situation that crops up with Paul and some of the early churches that he's ministering to in what we sometimes call Asia Minor. This is the area outside of what we now know of as Israel. And so Paul has a ministry to go to the Gentiles, that is to people who are not Jewish, and bring the gospel of Jesus' teachings to them. Now, an interesting thing happens some of the leaders from Jerusalem, that is, some of the folks who are a part of the earliest Jesus movement in Jerusalem, and therefore people who are ethnically Jewish, they travel and they visit these other churches where Paul is ministering. And that makes a lot of sense because Paul started out in these other countries ministering to Jewish synagogues first. Because again, like I mentioned a moment ago. Jesus was ethnically Jewish. He was a Jewish rabbi. So it only made sense that Paul started with synagogues, but as the gospel grew and as it spread, a dilemma began to arise. Because you see, people who were not Jewish began to respond to this message of the gospel. And we actually see that in the ministry of Peter earlier in Acts, starting in Acts chapter 12, with that familiar story of Peter delivering the gospel to a Roman soldier named Cornelius. That's a perfect example of how the Gospel began in the early years to cross over that ethnic boundary from Jews to Gentiles and people began to be touched by God and filled with the Spirit of God and therefore become followers of Jesus. Well, the very same same thing happens in Paul's ministry and then a controversy erupts because some of the, the leaders from Jerusalem come to Paul's churches in Asia Minor. And they began to teach something different. They began to say to all of these Gentile believers, these Gentile followers of Jesus, hey wait, you've missed something. There's something else you have to do here. You need to get circumcised. Now in the Bible, circumcision obviously refers to circumcision of men, but that word also functions as a kind of placeholder or shorthand for all of the Jewish laws. That is not just circumcision for men, but also practicing the Jewish holidays, like Passover and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, all those Jewish holidays that are meant to lift God up in Jewish culture. It also means abiding by Jewish dietary laws, that is, not eating all the things that the Old Testament uh, says that good Jews shouldn't eat. And so when they say that the followers of Jesus who are not Jewish have to be circumcised, What they're really saying is that they have to become Jewish. They have to convert to Judaism and take on all of the Jewish religious customs that identify them outwardly, identify them conspicuously as the people of God. Now, we're going to pause there and we're going to skip ahead in Acts chapter 15 to verse 6. So we left off there in verse 2. Just jump ahead a little bit with me to verse 6 and we'll see what happens next. What we see Happening here in verses 1 and 2 is that because of this controversy, Paul and Barnabas are sent by their church back to Jerusalem, which is sort of the mother church, so that they can talk to the Jerusalem elders, the Jerusalem leaders, many of whom were the apostles who walked with Jesus and followed Jesus himself. So in verse 6, we pick it up with Paul and Barnabas in Jerusalem. Verse 6 says this, The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. Now I'm going to pause there for a second. In those verses, verses 6 and 7, you have this leadership council in Jerusalem. And they're debating this very question. What happens when gentiles become christians do they need to adopt the jewish law do they need to become jews in order to be considered part of god's people and peter the apostle peter jumps up and he recounts for them the story that we read about in acts chapter 12 that story where he comes to cornelius and cornelius's household the roman centurion and he of course receives the holy spirit and gets saved peter says hey you guys do you remember that time that I took the gospel to Cornelius, well, we're really talking about the same thing here. So let's pick it up in, in verse 8. Peter continues and says this, And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them, that is to Cornelius and his family, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and them. And us. Now, this is a really important point because Peter's essential argument here is, hey look, it's really not up to us who God considers to be the people of God. It's up to God. God makes that choice. We don't. And if you remember that time that God called me to the household of Cornelius, it wasn't me that did anything. It wasn't me that made a change. I'm not the one that chose Cornelius. Rather." The Spirit of God poured itself out on Cornelius and baptized Cornelius and his whole family with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in that passage, Peter says the very same thing. He says, listen, who am I to say that we can't baptize these people when God himself has already baptized them by the Holy Spirit? Now, this is an incredibly important argument in the New Testament it's an incredibly important argument for Christianity. Because you see, it used to be that God's people were defined by a particular ethnic group. It used to be that God's people were defined by a certain culture. But at this point in the book of Acts, at this point in the early church, Peter and the early apostles, including Paul, they made the critical, essential observation That really, who got to be Christians, who got to call themselves followers of Christ, wasn't up to them. It had nothing to do with who was Jewish and who wasn't Jewish. And it had everything to do with what God's choice was and what God was doing in the world. In other words, and this is really the important point that I want to make to you today. In other words, God cannot be contained. God can't be contained by any tradition God can't be contained by any culture. God cannot be contained by any ethnicity. And when we try to contain God, when we try to stuff God into a box, what we're really doing is we're trying to control God. We're trying to define God for ourselves in ways that benefit us rather than letting God be the wild, free-spirited God that God is. Now, when we do that, When we try to contain God and draw boundaries around God and control God, there's a word for that in the Old Testament, and that word is idolatry. And one of the things that's important to know is that in the ancient Near East, when we see these Old Testament passages, like the very first uh, commandment in the Ten Commandments from Exodus, when we see that first commandment that says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down to graven idols is what it says in some of your translations. It's important to know that in the ancient Near East, the practice of idol worship was the practice of creating a carving or a physical representation of God. In some cases, it was carved out of wood. In some cases, it was carved out, carved out of stone. In some cases, it was just a pole like an Asherah pole in the pagan ceremonies of the ancient Near East, but whatever it was, the belief of idolatry is that by representing the image of that God, you can literally trap and contain that God and allow that God to exist only in a way that gives you the power to make that God do your bidding. And so in the Old Testament, when God is coming against idolatry over and over and over again, He's not coming against idolatry because The the depiction of God is wrong, although that's true too. What God is saying is that God refuses to be contained. God refuses to be controlled. God refuses to be defined by human definition. And there's really good reason for that. Maybe you've noticed this. I've noticed this myself. That when we try to define God and control God, what we usually end up doing is justifying our own bad behavior through God's representation and that is exactly what idolatry is and it's exactly what the false teachers were doing when they came to Paul's churches in Asia Minor what they were saying was no no no! the right way to be a follower of Jesus isn't the way you're doing it you have to be circumcised you have to abstain from the wrong kinds of foods you have to celebrate certain holidays and in doing that they were justifying that they had the corner on the market of God, that they could define who was in and who was out. Now, what happens at the end of Acts chapter 15, of course, is that the early apostles in Jerusalem, the eldership council there at that first church in Jerusalem, they finally decided that it made no sense to try to contain God, because clearly God was going to bring anybody God wanted into the kingdom of God. And so they simply sent Paul and Barnabas back with a letter and a few representatives to tell the Gentiles back in Asia Minor, hey, listen, you can go ahead and worship God according to your customs. But they did have two requests. And the first request we see is right there at the end of Acts chapter 15. And I think these two requests are important for us to understand how to avoid the idolatry of nationalism today in 21st century America. So look back at Acts chapter 15. And we're going to skip ahead to verse 19 and this is james the brother of jesus who stands up and says this therefore i've reached the decision that we should not trouble those gentiles who are turning to god but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled by blood now what you need to understand there is that james is saying listen they can go ahead and worship god and follow jesus according to their own culture as long as they avoid anything to do with idolatry. That makes sense, doesn't it, given everything that we just said. James is saying to them, you can go ahead and worship God any way you want, but you are going to have to resist the urge to turn your culture into an idol, idol worship in much the same way that in our own Jewish culture we have been tempted to do the same thing. These other things that James refers to, fornication and strangulating animals and eating and drinking blood, Those all have to do in ancient Near Eastern Greek culture with idol worship. And so all those things are bound up in this notion of creating a representation of God and then worshiping that God instead of worshiping the true God. Now, that's the first thing that James says that he asks them to do, to abstain from idol worship. But if you flip forward to Galatians chapter 2, what we're going to find in Galatians chapter 2 is Paul... Actually, talking in retrospect to the Galatian church about what's probably this same meaning, Paul here in Galatians chapter two is frustrated with the Galatians because they are falling prey to this teaching that they have to become like Jews, that they have to practice Jewish ceremonies and and be circumcised and uh, and also like abstain from certain foods that Jews abstain from, and so. Paul's frustrated that because they're not Jewish. There's no reason they should have to become Jewish in order to follow Christ. So there at the end of Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells the story of Acts chapter 15. He tells it over again in his own way. And there in Galatians chapter 2, all the way at the uh, end of that first long paragraph there, in verse 10, Paul summarizes by saying this, uh, after after the decision was made, Uh, After James and Cephas and John acknowledged that Paul was a minister to the Gentiles, verse 10, they asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. Now, here's what's really interesting about this, is we have two demands, or two requests, rather, that, that we read in Scripture were made at that Acts chapter 15 Jerusalem Council. The first one is mentioned by James, and that is, Whatever you do, stay away from idolatry. But they don't mention the second one. And then in Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, he doesn't mention idolatry, but he does mention this second request. And that second request is that whatever the Christians do in every other culture, whatever it is that they do in Galatia, whatever it is that they do in Antioch, whatever it is that they do in Philippi, whatever their local customs and local culture might dictate, one thing that james wants them to remember says paul is to remember the poor now i bring these two things up because i think these two things are really helpful for us as christians in the 21st century in america to remember as essential elements of the gospel so our job now then is not to become like ancient near eastern jews our job is not to take the culture of the old testament or the culture of the new testament and try to relive that or recapitulate that in some way, our job actually is much more complicated in some ways and much more simple in others. It's very simply to take the gospel of Christ and now translate it into our culture to figure out how it is that we follow Christ in the 21st century in America. And I think these two things give us a really helpful way of navigating that. The first is we are to avoid idols. And when we confuse our American culture and our American identity with our Christian identity, that becomes what we now sometimes refer to as nationalism. When we make the mistake of believing that to be Christian is to be an American or to be a good American is to be a Christian, then we have made the same mistake That the early Jewish followers of Jesus made when they insisted that people get circumcised or follow Jewish laws. You see, the essential observation that we all must make here is that God cannot be contained by any one culture. God can't be contained by any one culture any more than God can be contained by a wooden idol idol that's carved to represent God. God can't be contained by any given culture any more than God can be contained by a a wooden pole that is put in the center of a worship celebration. God can't be contained by any images or representations whatsoever. And that's why, of course, God can't be contained by American culture either. Now, this might sound really obvious to some of you and to some of you it might be a little bit confusing because in some traditions in the church we're really raised to believe that to be Christian is to be American, and to be American is to be Christian. But of course, if you just think about it for a moment, it becomes obvious why that can't be true. First of all, not all Americans are Christians. America is full of people who are some other faith, either they're Jewish, or they're Muslim, or they're Buddhist, or they're Sikh, or they're New Thought, or Mormon, or some other version of faith that gives meaning and purpose to their lives, you may not agree with those faiths, I may not agree with those faiths, but those people are still Americans and are therefore united with us as Christian Americans by our mutual identity as citizens of the United States. It's also true, of course, that not all Christians are American in the sense that the rest of the world is full of people who are citizens of other countries And yet, they are Christians. And what makes this especially complicated, of course, is that many of the citizens of other countries who are Americans, they inhabit other countries and other regions of the world where the American flag is not seen as a symbol of liberty. It's not seen as a symbol of free speech and freedom of religion and the ability to make something of yourself and to succeed and climb the social ladder, for them, the flag doesn't mean freedom and liberty and prosperity. Maybe for them, the American flag means violence and oppression and colonialism. Because whether you like it or not as an American, whether I like it or not as an American, America has committed a number of horrible acts around the globe in the name of American policy. And that, of course, doesn't mean that the individual soldiers who participated in that did so with any kind of malice. It doesn't mean that those soldiers themselves weren't Christians, that they weren't serving the United States out of a desire to simply serve their country and protect their freedoms. That might very well be the case, and I think is more often the case. But it's also true that those Christians and non-Christians who live in other countries are very often on the receiving end of really destructive American power. And so when we, in the American church, take that symbol, that flag, and we put it in a place of worship, we are intentionally or unintentionally making the statement that somehow God and America are joined together and God and America are not joined together. God is not on the side of America any more than God is on the side of Russia, or China, or Brazil, or Mexico, or Canada. God is only on the side of one group of people in every country, in every place, in every time, and that is on the side of those who are poor, and oppressed, and marginalized. That's why I think it's so powerful that at the, uh, towards the middle of Galatians chapter two, Paul says to the Galatian Christians, the one thing that they asked us to do was remember the poor. And that's of course my second point. The other essential characteristic of Christianity, no matter what culture it finds itself in, no matter what nation it finds itself in, is that it remembers those who are poor and oppressed and marginalized. And anytime we as Americans find our country committing those acts of oppression, then it's our duty as Christians, even if we are citizens of this country, to criticize those laws and those policies. Now this of course can get really complicated really fast, I really understand that, I really appreciate that we all don't want to think about these things uh, all the time, that it can be difficult to separate out these realities. but. Here's just one really simple way that i think about this and maybe this will be helpful to you too i of course am a citizen of the united states i was born in the united states i love the united states i'm grateful to be a citizen of the united states i'm grateful for the freedoms i have and i'm grateful for the people who serve this country in a myriad of ways that help this country to become the best nation it can but i'm not just an american citizen i'm also a citizen of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And my citizenship in the kingdom of God comes first and foremost. And all my other identities come after that. Because of course, I'm not just a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm not just a citizen of the United States. I'm also a husband and I'm also a father. I'm also the pastor of the Oceanside Sanctuary. I'm also a white, uh, cisgendered uh, straight man. I'm also middle-class, I'm, I'm also left-handed, I'm all kinds of identities that give meaning and purpose to my life. And all of those identities can be good and can be life-giving. But to make my citizenship in the kingdom of God is not to make those other identities bad at all, but it is to subordinate all those other identities to the one identity that really matters most And that is that I am united with Christ by putting Christ at the center of my life. Later in uh, Galatians, there's a memorable verse. It's Galatians chapter three, verse 28. And I, I, I repeat it a lot in church because I think that it represents very well what we are all about at the Oceanside Sanctuary. But at the end of Paul's argument about how being a Christian doesn't have anything to do with ethnic identity. It doesn't have anything to do with following the Jewish law. Paul summarizes with this incredible memorable statement in Galatians 3, verse 28, when he says, There is therefore now no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male nor female for all are one in Christ Jesus. And what that means, very simply, is that by putting my faith in Christ, I have put Christ first in my life. And all those other identities, physical, ethnic, political, whatever they might be. They all serve that one central identity, and that is me as a person who is dependent on the grace and mercy of Christ and is committed to learning how to follow Him. I hope that's helpful for you. We are going to continue to unpack these ideas over the next several weeks. I'm going to be talking more about the different things in our lives that can become idols that will replace our worship of God if we're not very careful about it. But I know that these issues are complicated and, uh, and difficult to sort out and sometimes difficult to think through. And so for this particular teaching series, I've put together a series of conversations that will supplement my sermons on Sunday mornings. And what I've done is I've asked a group of other pastors and church leaders to join me on Zoom calls where we talk about these topics and we get into them in a little bit more theological depth. And if you're the kind of person who enjoys uh, theological talk and you want to sort of peek in over the shoulder of four or five pastors and church leaders having a conversation, a free uh, and and longer conversation about these issues. And I want to invite you to watch those. There's a new page on our website at OceansideSanctuary.org. That page is called uh, Learning Lab. And so you'll find it on the main menu if you just go up to Connect and you, or on Media, if you go up to Media and you scroll down, you'll see a page called Learning Lab. And if you click on that, uh, there is a video there uh, called Conversation Number One, and it's about nationalism in the church. And if you're interested, you can uh, listen in on that conversation and add your comments and your own thoughts to it as well. And I'm gonna be posting one of those conversations every week during this series of American Gods as a way of giving you a little bit more depth and a little bit more perspective on these issues. That's all I have for you today. I hope that you are at home staying safe and staying well. I want to close with a word of prayer and ask that you join with me as as I do. Father, we just thank you again for today. Spirit, we are grateful for your presence in our lives. Christ, we confess that whether we are good at it or not, whether we always remember to or not, that we are placing you squarely at the center of our lives, that our allegiance to you, our loyalty to you, and your teachings comes first and foremost. And so we ask, God, that you would give us the grace to make that true in our lives. We ask that you would give us the wisdom and insight to see when our hearts are being pulled in the direction of a novel form of idolatry that gives us some sense that we are able to contain you or control you or pull your strings or push your buttons. We ask, God, that you would teach us to repent when we are... Adopting those kinds of idols in our lives, and give us the insight to see how we can be rid of them. We ask that you would keep us safe and healthy during this time of coronavirus pandemic. We pray for those who are suffering from its effects. We pray all this in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Have a great week.